I want to continue in that. And um, this morning, I want to I want to talk to you. I just want to talk to you as your pastor. I know a lot of times, most Sundays, I run around here, work up a sweat and lose my voice and, and go too long. Um, this morning, I, I want to talk to you as your pastor. And I've mentioned to you a book that has worked its way into my top five books of the last 10 years, the other half of church. And some of you guys have told me you've picked it up and it's blessing you the same way. It's really a remarkable, this is a landmark generational book, and it has to do with the understanding we're learning more and more about how the brain operates. Um, it's really phenomenal, and as I said a few weeks ago, the NFL doesn't want us to know all that we're learning about the brain because football players have Dane Bramage, you know what I mean? And um, that's what we call it in our house. And teenage boys sometimes have it between 15 and 21 years old. Whether they play football or not, they have Dane Bramage. Um, I had it. God healed me from it. And so as we talk, the left brain and right brain, it, it's incredible the scriptures now that we can fully understand why they're in the Bible, you know, how the, the left brain is to, to know facts and semantics and, and the right brain picks, it's, it has to do with our autobiographical memory. It's the episodic memory. We pick up on things. It sends us six messages per second. We're perceiving things that our left brain never even picks up. And we come to understand that that's why in Ezekiel 36 that God said, there will be a day when I'm going to put my spirit in your mind, in your heart, and I will move you. I will heal you from the episodes that you've been through in your life, and I will move you to be able to follow my decrees or my law. It's a really remarkable, remarkable book. I'm going to do something this, this morning. There are four characteristics of a culture that transforms, and I thought about preaching one of those each week. And we're coming into some holidays, and I thought there's no way I'll, people will get lost. And so I want to take this morning, I want to mention all four of them. And so we're in the series, If You Know, You Know. And if you're here this morning and you know, then you know that you know. And if you don't know that you know, you probably don't know. How many of you know that you know? If you know what? The truth. The truth. In knowing it, you're set free. Four verses later, Jesus said, he whom the Son sets free is free for real. And so this morning, I want to talk, as we've talked, I believe we're in a Holy Spirit reformation. I believe a lot what Bishop Madden just shared, that there is a repositioning we talked about 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation. And I believe that there are some supernatural things being released. And um, it's remarkable as the world is falling apart, the church is not. The church is being repositioned for a great harvest, and we're thankful for it here. And by the way, those of you who are helping us park over at Alpine Bakery, we are so thankful that you're doing that. I'm, I'm not sure if, they, if we were able to park by the, around the gym today, but it rained so much yesterday we were concerned we weren't going to be able to do it. And just by way of administrative note, we are trying to get into August before we add a service. Um, if we add a service right now, we're told that we would pick up 200 people. And just the flip of the service, that parking would be worse, traffic would be crazy, people would be frustrated. And um, because our parking lot's going from 245 parking spaces till the end of the summer, we'll have 360. And um, as you know, we're not about numbers around here. And, um, but we do feel that the time is coming, and um, if we had parking, we would have probably already added another service. And I, I, I announced that because I want to speak into that, because I know there are a lot of people that go, oh man, what God's doing here, let's don't make any moves that would upset what God is doing. And so what I would ask you to do is pray with us, and we all know the things that makes this place special. And pray with us that God will enable us and give us wisdom and that he'll, he'll send people that will support and appreciate and value what he's doing, those things that make this place special. He's the one that makes this place special. And so 
a culture that transforms. This works on teams and families and in churches. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 said this. So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for this reason, to equip his people for works of service or ministry so that the body of Christ, the church, that's us, may be built up or edified, made strong. That's why we go to the gym. We get pumped up. Verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and here's the big one, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He gave those offices to build up the church so that the church might truly look like the body of Christ, the fullness of Christ. Matthew 28, Jesus said, his last words, he said, all authority has been given to me. Now go make disciples of every nation. He didn't tell us about his authority by accident or just by the way. He said, all authority has been given to me. In John 17, he had said, I give it to you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Now go make disciples. It's called the Great Commission. Dallas Willard, in his book, he calls it what the church is doing right now is the great omission. Discipleship is not happening. And so we asked the question, growing up around the church, I've asked, how do people change? How do people grow? We've got big sermons, but we don't have a lot of transformation. Why is that? Now we have pastors on staffs. There's a new position being created called spiritual formation. I don't know if you're aware of this. Because crowds are growing, but people aren't on an individual basis. Now, step one is come to Christ. Step two is get baptized. Step three is become a disciple. Learn how to follow Jesus. Now, when the church is making disciples, how many of you know it's a great place to be? It's fulfilling its purpose. People are being changed. The body of Christ is being built up. The church as a whole is starting to look like Jesus in the community and the world is impacted by the church as opposed to the other way around. <clears throat> now, discipleship doesn't excite leaders who are into numbers who are, have their eyes fixed on growth. Um, it's a, it's, discipleship is a slower way to grow the church, but it's a much healthier. In the short run, it doesn't pay off, but in the long run, it pays off handsomely, and we see the kingdom come. Now, the culture that transforms, or the church that makes disciples, has some nutrients in the soil that make it easy for disciples to grow. And those are the things I wanna talk about that come from the book, The Other Half of Church. The first one is joy. Everybody say joy. joy. It's the face, and the keyword underscore face. It's the face of Jesus that transforms. God designed our brains to run on joy like a car runs on fuel. We're seeing now what happens in the brains with certain things, everything from getting a text or a Facebook like, what happens in the brain. Our brains desire joy and affirmation more, more than anything else. Scripture talks about joy all the time and the, necessary, the, the fact that it's necessary. It is most often in Scripture, joy is most often attached to seeing, listen to me, the face of God. And research indicates that human joy is felt most deeply when we see the expression on someone's face that we love and we know they love us in return. That's why we say Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, 5, and 6 every week. And you'll notice what it says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face again toward you and give you peace. Listen to me. God designed our brains for joy. And he wants us to listen. In, he wants us to live in real joy. Not happiness. That's shallow. Things have to happen that we like to feel happiness. Joy, the Bible says, it's unspeakable. 
You, you can't even describe it, and it's full of glory. Evidence that God is real is what glory is. Now, um, this blessing right here, God designed our hearts to for joy, and he wants us to live in real joy, all of his children. This blessing that I just read from Numbers expresses a joy that is actually literally translated and paraphrased to say this. Listen, may you feel the joy of God's face shining on you because he is happy to be with you. When translating the original languages of the Bible, joy sometimes disappears in modern languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament's Koine Greek. And we see joy is kind of the Old Testament word. It's hard to describe it. And agape in, in the New Testament. But joy disappears sometimes when we get it translated into English. We see it clearly in the Hebrew, but it gets lost in the translation. For instance, and there's three dozen verses that we could look at. This book looks at like 15 of them. Psalm 16 verse 11 is translated from the Hebrew to us in English and it says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Anybody ever heard that verse? Anybody believe it's true? It's in his presence is, yeah, there's rich, deep joy. But it literally is translated this. When your face lights up because you, God, are so happy to be with me, you fill me up with joy. And so we're seeing that joy has to do with seeing a face or a countenance of someone you love and they love you. Now, brain science now, and I'm not going to bore you with all the brain science, but just enough so you can catch on the fullness of what we're seeing in Scripture now. Brain science now reveals that this joy sensation is crucial for emotional and relational development. God designed our brains to seek joy through eyes and facial expressions. You heard me say many times, the Bible says the eye is the window to the soul. And after three minutes of talking, my right brain can pick up looking into your soul if you're my people or not. And in this room, most everybody is my people. Candace is my people with a capital P. But, but we, we pick up... This, there's so much going on that our, that, and we in the Western world, I don't have time to get into this, but because of the enlightenment, we went all CPA, all legal, all hard facts. And, and it's like, we can't live on our, emotions are not all bad. We need them. And so when, when we talk about joy, it's, it's crucial for emotional and relational development. God designed our brains to seek joy through eyes and facial expressions through being with people who are glad to be with us. Now look here, joy is primarily transmitted through the face, especially the eyes, and secondarily through the voice. We can hear more than what we're saying. And you can say the right thing to your wife the wrong way. Can I get a witness? And she picks up not on what you said, but on what you said. She knows that she knows. Second, joy is relational. You can't, like, joy, the only way I know how to uh, describe this, I love to snow ski, and I've been out a couple times by myself. One year I went three days early by myself before the kids and Candace came. And it was no fun. As much as I like to ski, I'm like, I don't have anybody to yell with and to celebrate. This. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm wired that way. I don't like experiencing awesome things by myself. If I ever hit a hole in one playing golf by myself, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> you know, joy is relational. It is what we feel when we're with someone who is happy to be with us. Joy does not exist outside of relationship. Joy is important to God and to us. Duh. Now, joy helps us regulate our emotions so that we can endure suffering. It does not remove our pain or suffering, but it gives us strength to endure. This is why the scripture in Hebrews says, Jesus endured the cross 
for the joy that was set before him. And again, we're in a microwave culture. We like things now. We're not willing to wait. We, we'd rather take a little less now than wait and have more. But joy helps us to endure difficult times. Now, our identity is built and formed. I'm moving into some much more deeper, profound stuff. Our identity, who I am, is formed by joy-bonded relationships. The people I have joy with shape how I see myself. The identity center in our brain grows in response to joy, which helps or frees us to act like ourselves. You ever been around someone that you go, I can be who I am. That's because there's a tremendous amount of joy experienced mutually in those relationships. Now, since joy helps us regulate painful emotions, when it runs low, what happens? We will look to non-relational sources to stop the pain. Human hearts that are low on joy are primed for addictions. No one grows up wants to be an addict. No one. But everyone wants and needs joy. Someone who has no joy will medicate their pain in an effort to find pseudo-joy. We were wired. A culture that transforms, a church that disciples, there, there must be a healthy dose of real joy. Second thing is this. It's a word called hesed. It's a Hebrew word. It's our relational glue. Now, everybody say that word with me. You have to kind of sneeze as you say, I said. Okay. It's, this is, half of y'all are new in the last five months. So you, but I talk about communitas. We've talked a lot about like real community, not pseudo community, real community. Everybody's looking for it. This is why corporate teams pay big bucks and go out and do, um, what do they call those, uh, yeah, team building, but what, what's the high ropes course and all that, and, and trust falls to develop this. People, people need it and want it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, the B part says that the body of Christ may, built, may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. What draws the glue that keeps us together is our connection to the faith in Jesus. First Thessalonians, Paul says this, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. All right, listen, I'm gonna talk fast, so you gotta listen fast. Has said is relational love that cannot be described in words. You love anybody like that? It's actually, it becomes more than love. It's, it's an attachment. It's what children are supposed to get with their parents, especially their mother. Our brains draw life from our strongest relational attachments to grow our character and develop our identity. Who we truly love or experience has said with shapes who we are. The translators found it hard to translate this word into English. Has said, like most Hebrew words and Greek words, it takes 10 English words to describe the richness of that, the meaning of that word. The, those languages are just so romantic and so much more complete in expressing feelings. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul could have just said, everybody should love. But he, he's like, y'all won't get it in English, so he breaks it down and describes in a whole chapter what love looks like. He said, it's patient, kind, does not envy, does not brag, keeps no record of wrongs, and goes on and on and on. Ideally, spouses, families, we are to experience, close friends are to experience, has naturally experience, has said relationships. Do you have anyone, everybody, I wanna ask you this question. Do you have anyone that you love and they reciprocate your love and it cannot be described what you feel for them and what they feel for you? And that love has in many ways made you who you are today. That's has said love. 
Candace and I said we loved each other. We pledged. But, and I loved her. I remember the first time I saw her. But how I love her now, three decades later almost, it's like, I don't even know if I liked you back when we got married. God, thank God we, y'all know what I'm saying? Do you have anybody that, the love you have for them, you can't, describe, you can't put it into words. That's Hased love. When Hased love is experienced in a church family, that culture or soil is ripe for growing disciples. Solid Bible teaching and good doctrine and scripture memory, as good as all of that stuff is, it is not enough to grow disciples. In the, in the book, The Solution of Choice, Jim Wilder, the same author of this, and Marcus Warner explained the role of love in discipleship. It's the role of love and discipleship. And he says, when said replaces truth, the knowledge of facts, knowing the right, when said replaces truth as the foundation of discipleship, the whole model self-corrects. Placing love at the core of the transformation process allows truth, choice, and power to play their proper roles and not bear a weight they were never intended to carry. Developments in modern brain science have made it clear that any model of transformation and character change must be anchored in the development of a love bond with God and his people. We see now some of the, the issues we have. Many of, us, many of us have been part of churches that they couldn't program or build a culture for true hesed. Because it was growth driven or it was um, personality driven or it was something other than the biblical model for church. We see this kind of said love. It's the central theme of the entire Bible. It's on every page in every chapter. First John is a good example. He says, look here, dear friends. Let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God knows God. Whoever does not love doesn't even know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I love this right here. It says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, they will see God. God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I'd like to unpack that, but I'm gonna unpack some other stuff in just a few minutes. But this, this, this experiencing that love, that connection that is indescribable is one of the, it's the second ingredient, nutrient that's needed in the culture of a disciple-making church. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. He goes, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Our said attachment with God converts us from fearful slaves to delighted, secure children. You should be secure in the love that you have for God and he has for you. Because your love for him is a natural reaction to the revelation of his love for you. Y'all out there? At the end of this same chapter in Romans chapter 8, Paul goes on and he wonders, who will separate us? from this kind of love, the love of Christ. And he offers an exhaustive list and then concludes that nothing shall be able to separate us from the hesed of God. You see, we are created to enjoy relationships that have this kind of love where nothing can by any means separate us. Most marriages, if not all, that are truly flourishing there is a level of trust where both partners know that there is nothing that will ever cause them to reach out to a divorce attorney. 
My kids have asked me before, what's the thing you appreciate most about mommy? And I, I say, I can't do just one. Besides the obvious, I'm attracted to her. The love, I mean, the loyal, the loyalty that she has for me, for our family, and the fact that I can trust her implicitly. And that is what makes fruitful relationships. That's what creates a culture where people can be who they are and grow into all that God wants them to be. Now, let's, let me talk just a little bit, just off the cuff from my heart to you. When, when Candace and I first came back a few years ago, there was a handful of people. And um, Wednesday night, there was, there was a program, but it was seldom did we have more than uh, single digits on campus. And we were here for a few months and, and I could tell people were awkward with fellowshipping with us. And I was like, this is, I love fellowship. And I'm not, I think they love me, but they don't know how to express it. And so I did something crazy radical. And I, I was like, we're going old school. We're gonna just start serving a meal. We're gonna serve the best meal we can and, and almost give it away, charge $4. And how many of y'all were here the first time we started Wednesday night family meal at six o'clock? Look around, like eight of us. That's good, because that's all we could cook for was like eight. <laughs> and um, I don't know if you remember, but the first time people, it, I was in Guatemala. Candace, Caroline, Erica sent me a picture. The lobby was full. I was like, we just had more people eat than we had in church on Sunday morning. <laughs> and we were on to something. And, and what relationship, fellowship, the things that we still enjoy, that now, this is a crazy church. We have to set up and serve a meal in the sanctuary on Wednesday nights. Um, we were with Heather Clatt a couple weeks ago, and she said she was standing there on a Wednesday night with her kids in, her cl in their classes, and she said it just felt so nostalgic. And what was that? It, it's us moving away from a fast-paced culture that's so transient and disconnected to where it's like we're getting connected to people. Now, we don't serve a meal on Wednesday nights just because you can't, you know, I mean, there are, you could walk from here and get a meal and be back in church on time. We, we did that intentionally so that we could sit down with each other, get to know each other, and I don't want to give it too much credit, but learning how to break bread together, to look across the table into people's eyes, and you learn to go, I, I'm, I'm learning to love him, and they're learning to love me. Don't misunderstand that and think, man, that is so old school. It is old school. It's like Bible old school. How many of you know, we've had enough of the new and shiny. We need a little bit of the real stuff. And, and that's the type, and we set out, and we endeavor to, to build that kind of community. Tonight, there'll be people groups that are meeting. And I, we've had, to, Candace and I were at a people group two weeks ago, and there were 49 adults and 21 children. How many of you know, that's why we don't call them small groups around here. We call them people groups. They're like, that's a church. That's bigger than some churches. The good news is that we had 70 people there. The bad news is when we pulled up, half of them had a California license plate on their car. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's the right kind of Californians. How many of y'all want all the right kind of Californians to move to Atlanta? I, but to see in there, now listen, you may go, yeah, Hased. That's what happens in small groups. Not every small group. A lot of small groups, it's, it's facts driven or there's other things. It, it, you have to be intentional to, to create real community. And I'm thankful that in that one and many of the others, as some of you have shared your stories, made yourself vulnerable incredible, at incredible levels. And it's engendered more love and it's created what we feel and what Bishop Madden picked up on when you come. There's something in here going on even now. It's been going on for, for quite some time that we can't describe it, but we like it. Am I right? Why, why would you sit in here in a pandemic and, and do what we, we've been doing since May? 
For one, we're not going to be controlled. And fear is a liar, and fear is not our God. Am I right? But the other thing is, we're hungry. We're hungry to be a part of a community that's alive. I, I, rabbit trail averted, come back. Just save 10 minutes again. Listen to this. I'm just, y'all know how I am. I just, at 55 years old, I just, I want to get after the stuff that really counts. Page 101 in the book, a good way to assess the chesed of your community is to look at leadership, money, staff, and time. Are your leaders emotionally healthy people with good relational skills? Would you want to imitate them? Do they love people well, especially people who irritate them? Do they, peep, do they love, I'm sorry, how much time and money does your church spend developing loving attachments between your people? Does your church offer training on things like relational skills, emotional resilience, and character formation? Is love the starting point for every ministry and activity? When you walk into a strongly attached community, you feel something in your body. Wow, these people really love to be together. High Hased communities bring God's joy to people. They stimu this stimulates a hunger and desire to bond with God and others. Joy remains high even in the presence of suffering because the community's bonds are stronger than their distress. I believe the day is coming soon when we're going to need those type of bonds. It's already here to deal with the things and the distress that we're walking through. Let me just say this. Think about that joy. So we're, we're saying we need joy and a tight-knit community to make disciples. And what is Satan trying to rob us of the last 13 months? Joy and togetherness. And we will not be controlled in such a way that fear or concern or, the, or Capitol Hill or L.A., robs us of our joy. And I just speak that over you in the name of, listen, don't clap, I need the time. I speak it over you. You need to make a, a commitment that I'm going to walk in, in joy because on every page, in every chapter, in every verse, God says, you can trust me. Therefore, be filled with joy. And when Nehemiah came back and saw, listen, don't cry about what's going on. Don't cry because it's been so long since we've read from God's word. No, let's take joy in the fact that we've got God's word. We're not in Babylon anymore. And we, the wall ain't finished, but at least we're started. Listen, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Come on. It, don't, don't trivialize that and then in in a pandemic you know in the shutdown thank god we're in the state of georgia we came back from Cal, uh, colorado over spring break and jp and i called a workout at lifetime J I'm, I'm running on the treadmill and they come over and i have to put my mask on i'm like you're gonna kill me how stupid is that some of y'all came from California because common sense has just left us. And so here we sit going, we, we were quarantined long enough. We need to be together because the body of Christ has got to be together. Listen, hold on. The body of Christ cannot forsake the, the assembling of themselves together because supernatural sounds from heaven, winds of heaven come when the body of Christ gathers all in one place, not on one Facebook page, and in one accord. Come on, how many of you recognize the signs of heaven, the sounds of heaven? Come on, somebody, listen. Praise your name, Father. I'm tempted, but another five minutes was saved right there. Number three, seriously, I could preach this morning. I wanted to do one point one week. I'm doing real well. I just preached two weeks sermon in 30 minutes. How awesome is that? God is a God of miracles. 
Number three, so not only joy but, and chesed in that order, but group identity, the way the brain works. I'm asking myself, what kind of people are we? And we should ask that. Listen closely. This is not Christianity or Sermon 101. This is like 301. In Western culture, identity is individualist. We've declared our independence in this nation. But in other cultures around the world, identity is naturally thought of in terms of group values, family values. And you may know this if you've raised a middle schooler. Around age 12, something structurally changes in the brain of a, of a seventh grade, eighth grade boy or girl. They change from their identity being how their parents see them to how their friends see them. And, and group identity begins to, they begin to get other attachments and they become potentially part of other chaseds that can shape who they are and who they're becoming. And from this point on, their group identity is a key player in the formation of character and identity. Side note, this is why the last two Wednesday nights had over 200 people in here, adults, as we've talked about family. This is why we say about our youth ministry and children's ministry around here. We've got to build subcultures that in those formative years help shape their spiritual values together with other like-minded families. You go, well, that sounds kind of separatist. No, there's a season. Jesus prayed that we would be in the world and not of the world. And in those formative years, you can't let them spend, what, 30 hours in a public school or even private school setting and only spend 75 minutes on Sunday morning Everybody tracking with me? And, and you will not, in this culture, you will not accidentally, unintentionally raise a healthy spiritual son or daughter. We, and we've got to be intentional. Oh, man. And, and it's so critical in a church where, you know, and I thank God for what's happening. You know, last Sunday in, in one of the preschool rooms, there were 26 children in one room, age four, five, and six. You ought to praise God you weren't in that room. Just you ought to praise God for that. You know, Wednesday nights, we're near growing out of the second building. And you know what? I just, I've told you this before. Pastoring hungry people who are teachable, who are, y'all are easy to lead. Because you, we are all on the same homothermodon, Acts chapter 2. One place, one, we're all on the same sheet of music going, you're right. We see it. Let's do this together. It's awesome. And there's a group identity. I, I, got, I got to move quick. Um, so let me just say real quick. Jesus began talking about um, his kingdom. He, he started his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He began to, listen, call people out of the world into his group. Peter heard that and was one of those original members in his group. He got the identity of that group, and that's why later he would call the group a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, chosen, royal, holy, special. And then Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, he began to identify and give detail about this group as he delivers the Sermon on the Mount, it's a heavy dose of group identity for these chosen, royal, holy, special people. He answers questions like we constantly have to answer. What kind of people are we? In light of what's happening in the world, how do we act as members of God's kingdom on the earth? You can look at this. I'm summarizing three chapters that's rich in Jesus describing the kind of people that will be in his group. We're a people who takes God's command seriously, reconcile as quickly as possible, are careful to obey God in our sexuality, even with glances and thoughts, remain faithful to our spouses, keep our word and have no need to make oaths, love our enemies and pray for them, seek to be rewarded by God instead of by people, forgive others because we have been forgiven much by our Father. 
Jesus is identifying, here's what this group identity should be. This is what will define, this is how we will act in our world. Listen now. What we are learning about the brain is so interesting and fascinating. Our brains were designed to respond to group identity in order to help us act like our people. I've got to find my people, have joy with my people, and then when I realize they are my people, my brain begin the, the way the Holy Spirit moves and shapes me, I begin to behave and make choices like my people. You see, communities that have lots of joy, has said community without a strong group identity, the members have a hard time knowing how to change their behavior. This is the power of modeling, the power of example. My children tell me often, they ask, the grown ones do at least, and, and, and the younger ones too at, at points, but they say, oftentimes I ask myself, what would dad say, or what would mom say? What would, what would mom do? And when God, when he is the one with the authority, using the, the chains of people that he uses, not everybody, and I only say this to give you the example, not to pump me up, but no doubt the way the Holy Spirit speaks here on Sunday mornings, there are times you find yourself throughout the week going, I remember when Pastor Chuck, and it's really not, it's, I remember what God said on Sunday morning because there's a group that I identify with and I operate and flow with the spirit that moves that group. A lot for me to say. Are y'all picking up a little bit of what I'm putting down? And, and the way we see and understand development is it's just remarkable. Now, unfortunately, too many Christian communities have poorly developed group identities. And let me just say it like this. Everybody wants to be on a winning team, right? I've coached 23 football teams. I've never been 0 and 8 but I've had some friends coach teams that were defeated. You know how hard practice is on Tuesday afternoon when you're like, we've lost the last eight games and then been closed. I can't wait for the end of season party where I get my big old fat trophy because that's what we do, even if we go 0 and 8 in this culture. <laughs> um, and then you got the team that's six and two and they're like, they're getting better. There's a, there's a much better group identity. I, I don't have time to milk this, but everybody, so many churches either have an identity built around a person or a weak understanding of the power of this. Um, they, they've heard there's an empty tomb, but they're not sure if they believe it or not. And the church and, and leadership has shrunk back. And, and there's this, if I can just survive week to week, and there's, there's very little authority in the pulpit or in the, in the kingdom, and I'm not talking about, hey, follow me, I'm the man. I'm talking about the total opposite. Follow me, because I'm nothing and I know the man. That's, y'all understand? And wh what's happening in here, there's a kingdom alignment that's been happening that, you know, we haven't bought a new sign, we haven't paid for any advertising, because when God starts showing up and lives start getting changed, there's a healthy sense of, I want everybody in my cul-de-sac to experience what I'm experiencing. And many of you have stood the last few months at the end of this service with tears in your eyes. And you've told me about what's going on here and what you discern. And you've told me you've been looking for a Bible preaching church for X number of years. Thank God I found this place. That, could we be a true kingdom church? Could we be a place where people go, if I, whatever I gotta do to get you there, when you experience the love that flows through this people, when you smell of the joy that's in that room, it will transform your life. Anybody tracking with what I'm saying? Now, um, Many of you, your observations when you first came, 
Most of you decided within five minutes of being here, before I ever preached or you ever even knew who the pastor was, most of y'all decided if you're coming back or not. Some of you decided, I'm coming back, and then you heard me preach, and then you're like, oh, Lord God. I got, we're gonna have to pray about that again. I'm teasing, kinda. Uh, but you, you discerned something. The Holy Spirit, remember, the right side of your brain that's anointed, Holy Spirit, Ezekiel 36, 26, has come there. At the rate of six messages per second, you're picking up on what's going on in this place. There was, um, our understanding of, of, of group identity has changed dramatically over the last 100 years and it continues to even more and more. 100 years ago in our culture, I wasn't here, but it, it was common to live in a community where everybody knew you. Everybody knew your parents and everybody knew your grandparents, or most people did. It's not that way anymore in our transient culture where people move. Um, and because of it, we're missing one of the ingredients, the roots that we need to really be able to make disciples. Um, there's a book called Restoring the Early Church, Mike and Sue Dogowitz. I read it 20 years ago. They spent six months in Israel in a Jewish kibbutz, six months, and they took notes, and they came back, and the, the whole gist of that book was the way young Jewish children were exposed constantly to three generations in their family. And the healthy sense of who they are, they could never get away from it. And you wonder, and part of that's fulfilled prophecy, but how could a people be so mistreated and abused for centuries, and yet they still are able to keep their identity? Again, part of that's a prophecy. The other part of it is, you know, oh man. You know, this is why we go on vacation, and we used to go with our children and Candace's parents. And I know not everybody has that. You're like, the last thing I want is to take my children on a vacation with my dad or my, my mom. And I know not everybody has that, but I'm, I'm identifying this whole sense of group identity that we need to help our kids get roots. Y'all tracking what I'm saying? Now, lots of churches have good doctrine, great teaching, but little transformation because they only have one, two, or three of these. The last one is, y'all ready for this? How many of you are just thrilled we're at the last point? Just God's moving. Um, healthy correction. When the group stops being nice, Proverbs 15 says, Our, one whose ear heeds a life-giving reproof dwells among the wise. Whoever avoids correction despises himself, but whoever heeds reproof acquires understanding. Now listen to me. With the three essential nutrients for growth that I mentioned, joy, has said, and group identity. With just those and no correction, we would still grow. But we would grow like a plant that has no fruit on it. I don't know if you've ever farmed. Growing up in Virginia, we did. And we had to bring manure and nutrients in every year because what would happen is a bean plant could grow and be green and big. But if you've exhausted the nutrients in it, it would not have any beans on it. And this last one right here, coming to understand the importance of correction. You see, a lot of us want to live in echo chambers. We wanna to go to a church that, it's like a political convention. We're there with a lot of people we already agree with. We don't wanna hear sermons that stretch us. We wanna hear sermons preached that we've mastered, things we already agree with, regardless of what the Bible says. Many of us have already made up our mind, regardless of what the Bible said. Most preachers I know would prefer to be cheerleaders instead of prophets. 
Most would prefer to be popular than to parent children, stretching them, correcting them in their wrong thinking. Now, um, Lord, give me wisdom and give us a heart to hear what you are saying. Jesus was the master at this. There, we've gotten here for landing and we're gonna come in and God's gonna give us grace. How do you offer correction? Next week, we're gonna look at when you don't have these four ingredients, you know what you have? Narcissism. You have a leader that is so effective that it's become about them. And what we see in the American church the last few decades is success has ruined a lot of good people. Are y'all out there? How many of you know? I mean, just a lot. Seems like every time it's like, it would have never been him. No one saw that coming. But in this, We've got joy, we've got a tight-knit community, we've got a group that everybody's proud to be a part of that group and they wanna operate like the rest of their people. And when correction comes, it comes from someone who is part of the community who walks in humility and transparency as a member of that community, who doesn't drop in as the potentate and go, hey, let me correct you. Because that person knows to truly correct someone, they need to know that you love them and they love you. They need to know that they have has said with you. This is family. This is parenting. This is correction. Jesus was the master at it. I think it's Luke chapter 10. Um, in Luke chapter 10, the disciples get sent out by Jesus and, and they go out and do ministry. And next time he sees them, they're like, wow, even the demons are subject to us. We tell them what to do and it's amazing. And Jesus, knowing, listen to me, knowing that that unchecked authority could become a real stumbling block. Because people in ministry sometimes, they love the effectiveness more than the fruit. They like being, wow, my, look at my ministry. And Jesus knew long before most other people would know, I, I've got to tweak that. And Jesus said, look, that's not what you should be excited about. You should be excited that your name is written. You should be excited that you're part of the hesed. Are y'all tracking with me? Don't ever let the demons or the big conferences or the book signings become more important than your name's written down in the book of life. Later in that same passage, um, Jesus is with Mary and Martha. And this is a great story. You all know it. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Just She's an artist. She's like... And Martha keeps coming in and out and going, you know, Martha's telling herself, Jesus, I know you're Jesus, but you came unannounced. We didn't even know you were coming. And, and, I, and, and she's sitting there, where, could you tell her to help me? And Jesus, Jesus goes deeper than Martha. And G, Jesus goes, you know what, Martha? You, you're fretting and worried about a whole lot of things. He, he was saying, Martha, this ain't just about me coming unannounced and, and right now. You got a whole lot of stuff you've been worrying about. And what you need to learn is how to do this. And he, he gently, lovingly corrected her. And we don't know the rest of the story, but I bet you she learned how to sit at his feet and she received that correction. You know, in this book, 
it talks about the need for healthy shame. What is it? Toxic shame is when someone comes in and says, you shouldn't shame on you. That's toxic shame. And what's released in the brain is toxic. But there's fatherly, parental, Abba correction that releases something similar. But it makes a mental note and it, it releases an ability to go, I don't ever want to disappoint you again, Dad. And there's a big difference. And that's based out of love. Anybody picking up what I'm putting down? Now, there's two things. There's two things that really cause us to go, I just have a hard time receiving correction. And one is your self, your excuse going, that's not my fault. And that's the Adam, Eve, you know, you know what Adam said, that woman you put here, she's, it was her fault. And, and the knee jerk is, oh, when I get corrected, it's somebody else's fault. The other thing is unresolved wounds. Some people are not correctable at any level, no matter how comfortable the Hasid is. Others because they've resolved those wounds and they trust the said, they are able to receive the correction. We've had some of this in the last few weeks and it's a beautiful thing. Y'all see I've got my computer closed down and the musicians are out and I've talked to you like a pastor. Like I said, I was gonna do. I wanna close with this story. We passed, my mother and father passed away in February. We buried mom on a Monday and six days later, my dad laid, went to bed that night and he woke up in heaven. And we found out that Sunday morning after church, we had dad's memorial service and all the family was here. And it, it was a glorious experience. And my dad who was raised as an orphan and just the story of God's grace in his life, just remarkable. And, um, at that night, late at our house, it's a Saturday night, I've got to preach the next morning. All of our kids, the sons-in-laws, daughter-in-law are with us. And my son, my 17-year-old son, Luke, he, he came upstairs. Candace just had gotten there, it was after midnight. And he started talking about Papa Charlie. And Luke goes, Dad, you know, Papa Charlie was awesome. He said, I wish I had his name. He said, Banks is so lucky to be Charlie Banks Ramsey III. And he was just debriefing with us. And he said, Dad, you think it'd be okay for me to, to name one of my sons after Papa Charlie? And I thought, I don't think there's any law against it. He goes, Dad, you might have 10 or 12 grandsons named Charlie. <laughs> We're going to have Charlie Banks Ramsey, the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth. We're just going to start calling them by names. What is that? That's a kid who goes, I've experienced the joy of being part of this family. I trust the love in this family. I like who it's made me. Even when you've had to correct me, I still like it. I'm growing. Could I have the patriarch's name? May the people here and the people who, come, who will come here, may they go, I like Jesus. You think I could have his name you think I why because that's who we're producing that's the star of the show around here y'all out there this morning come on stand with me as we just we just acknowledge that we receive the Lord's word the teaching that he he brings to us this morning father I thank you for for these people I thank you for what you're doing in our midst we love you Lord we praise you. 
And I can imagine that there are all kinds of emotions, Father. And I want to pray for you, brothers and sisters. There's some sitting here going, I am so thankful for my mom. And I'm so thankful for my family. I'm so thankful for my roots. While there are others going, wow, I recognize some of my own frustrations with me, my own hurts and wounds and unresolved trauma. And I want to tell you, brother and sister, don't you let the enemy tell you you're in the wrong place. That's what he tries to do. It's, he wants that, that trauma to resurface. You go, I got to get out of here as soon as I can because you struggle with intimacy. And the Holy Spirit would say to you, be patient with yourself. God has called you and is planting you in a place where the nutrients of the soil are going to help you fulfill the destiny upon your life. In the name of Jesus, he sets the lonely in families. He's the father of the fatherless. We thank you, Father, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I pray, Father, that your said love would grow in this place, that it would be indescribably rich and real and that you would bring people to a place of freedom, of real freedom, that bondages would be broken, that strongholds would be broken, that generational memories in our episodic memory center would be healed and we would be delivered. And we take authority over you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Come on, brothers and sisters. We pray that the kingdom of God would explode in this place explode in our lives and so we speak forth oh I feel the Holy Spirit listen I'm calling out of your belly that that which is way down deep in who you are that you were destined to be that you the things that you were born to do the ministries that you've dreamt about the calling that you know it's yet to be fulfilled and the lack of joy, the distraction, we call that out. The words, the curses that were spoken over you, the mean things that were spoken over people that you trusted and loved and they didn't trust, love back and you, your heart was crushed. We cancel those assignments and those curses in the name of Jesus. And we pray for you, young lady, that you will walk in freedom and know the truth that brings that freedom. And the truth is capital T. His name is Jesus. He has come to set you free. He holds right now this morning the keys to death, hell, and the grave. You're an overcomer in the name of Jesus, we pray. And I pray, Father, for every young man. I pray for every grown man. I pray for every grandfather that's still carrying difficult things that were spoken over them, that have limited them. I pray for a release of freedom in the strong, mighty name of Jesus. Would you just say this with me? Say, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and that you are the one who was risen from the tomb. I believe the tomb is empty. And because it's empty, I'm going to live. Come on, say it. I'm alive. And I am free. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Listen, can you all speak it? Just say the name Jesus again right now. Say Jesus. Come on, say it again. Say Jesus. All right, hold on. Some of you are saying it like, I'm saying it, but I'm ready to go. Go ahead and go. Everybody else that wants to say it. Listen, the Bible says demons tremble at the sound. Hold up a second. I know I have taught like I don't normally teach, and there's things that get stirred up, and I don't want you to get in the car and keep carrying that stuff. I know how Satan works. He'll work harder on you because you got closer to truth and freedom. And so we're going to just declare in Jesus. Listen, if you want to be free, you can be free. If I'm the only one of the two of us that wants you to be free, it's not up to me. It's up to you. Now, how many of you say, I want to be free? I want to be all that God wants me to be in the name of Jesus. Now, come on. Shout out the name Jesus. Say, Jesus. Jesus.
Jesus' name. We just scared the demons tremble at the name of Jesus. Praise your name, Father. Praise your name, Father. Praise your name, Lord. You, you've got to get to your, you've got to get to your people group tonight. Even with all those Californians, you got to get there. I almost said a minute ago, we, we're going to scare the hell out of the devil. I don't know if that's possible, but I know Jesus is alive and he reigns and he is good. Amen? Listen, Wednesday night, Mike Adkins, I, I've said you will not hear a better Bible teacher, a more pastoral teaching. The next four weeks, he's going to be teaching about Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we'll be, he will be dealing with arriving at full freedom and that'll be this we're expecting he's got a lot of friends in atlanta and that'll be wednesday night starting this week for the next four weeks i love you let me say it over you you ready to receive it the lord bless you and keep you make his face shine up on you be gracious to you may the lord lift his countenance up toward you and give you peace in jesus name and for his glory come on say i receive it Y'all have a great afternoon. I love you.